Investing Compass is brought to you by Morningstar Australia. We'll run through the fundamentals of investing, take a deep dive of concepts and offer practical explanations, tools and resources that will allow you to invest confidently. The information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Welcome to our episode on international investing. We can't travel internationally, but we can still <laughs> invest internationally. And this is an exciting topic, Shani, because a listener actually suggested this. So we do have an email address in the notes of the podcast, and somebody emailed in that they wanted us to cover this topic. So I think that's exciting. And this is a big one, but I think it is appropriate because there are a lot of Australian investors that are showing a lot more interest in getting exposure to global markets. Yeah. So today we're going to cover several aspects of international investing. Um, and we'll start with why you should have international exposure in your portfolio. And then we'll move on to how, um, how to invest internationally and some of the nuances around investing outside of Australia, um, which includes currency risk. Okay. So as Shani said, we'll start with why you should invest internationally and First, let's lay a bit, of, a bit of a foundation. We'll talk about what we're actually referring to, and we're talking about global markets. So if we look at global markets, we're really looking at all the different companies that are publicly traded in countries around the world outside of Australia. So as a proxy for global markets, we can use an index. And there are differences in different indexes, but we are going to use the MSCI World All Cap Index. So this is an index that covers companies of all sizes. So that's the all cap part from all the developed countries around the world. And you can buy a BlackRock ETF that covers this index. And the ticker symbol for that is IWLD. And incidentally, that is rated gold by our analysts, which is our highest rating for funds and ETFs. And when we look at this, um, the underlying index or the ETF that Mark just mentioned, we can see that just under 65% is allocated to the US, um, a little over 8% is allocated to Japan, and just under 5% is allocated to the UK. The other 22% of the index is allocated to the remaining 20 countries. And, and the big question is, of course, where does Australia come in, Shani? Yeah, so Australia makes up around 2.3% of the index. Um, and this is a market cap weighted index. And what this means is that the share of the index that's allocated to each company is based on the value of the company. And um, so bigger companies have a bigger allocation. And this means that Australian companies are worth 2.3% of the total value of all the companies in the developed markets. Yeah. And as you mentioned, so this is developed markets. Now, of course, there are emerging markets as well. So BlackRock has another iShares ETF with the ticker symbol IEM, and that gives you exposure to another 26 countries. So if you combine the two, you still get less than 4% of global markets allocated to Australia. And the point of going through this exercise is just simply to say that Australia makes up a very small part of global stock markets. So if you are investing only in Australian shares, you are obviously missing out on a lot. And if you aren't investing globally as an Aussie, you're not alone. And um, so we've done our own research on this here at Morningstar for premium subscribers, but let's use a Vanguard survey. And this survey is from 2010. So it's slightly dated, but it shows the underlying theme of investing in Australia. And um, so investors in Australia tend to show quite a bit of home bias as the Vanguard study shows um, that 74% of Aussie investors portfolios are allocated to domestic equities. 
Okay, and let's let's pause for a second. So you used a term there, Shani, home bias. And let's just spend a second explaining that. So home bias is the tendency to stick with what feels comfortable. So it means personal experiences and allegiances play an outsized role in all the decisions we make. And so from an investing point of view, home bias is why people will gravitate to invest in local companies that they understand and know. And nobody is suggesting that your portfolio should only be at 4% allocated to Australian securities, but home bias is a real thing and it's important to understand um, the benefits of investing overseas. And the primary benefit you have is choice when investing internationally compared to a lack of choice when you only invest in Australian shares. We've talked about Australia being a small part of global markets, um, but it's also extremely concentrated in a few industries. So let's use the Vanguard Australian Shares ETF as an example. When we look at the allocation of that um, popular ETF, we see that there's a heavy concentration to financial services at close to 28% and 19% to materials. So effectively, you've got almost half of the ETF in two industries. Yeah, and you know that does make sense, Shani, right? Like we look around at the largest companies in Australia, and there's obviously the banks, and there are the miners. So you're getting, as you said, you're getting a lot of exposure to those two industries, and there's some things you're not getting exposure to, and namely tech companies. So if we go back and look at that BlackRock Global ETF, there's an 18.5% allocation to tech companies, and in that Vanguard Australian ETF that you mentioned, the exposure is less than 5%. Yeah, and so by limiting yourself to just investing locally, you're missing out on a lot of opportunities. Um, and these opportunities include some of the largest companies in the world or whole industries like technology, which has performed really well this year. So if we look at the NASDAQ composite, which is mainly technologies listed in the US, it had its best year in 11 years in 2020. Yeah, and remember that different industries and different types of companies will perform differently depending upon whatever environment we're in. And so that's the whole reason you want to create a diversified portfolio. So you have those different exposures. So let's talk a little bit more about diversification. Diversification is a process of allocating capital in a way that reduces the exposure to any one particular asset or risk. And we've often stressed that whenever you're thinking about investing, you do need to take a holistic approach. And that means focusing on not just your portfolio, but your whole financial life, including where and how you make money. Yeah. So for most people like us, we're working and living in Australia. So that means that the local economy here plays a pretty big role in determining our financial well-being and everyone in Australia. So if there's a downturn in the local economy, that can lead to depressed prices and housing and the share market. At the same time, your livelihood could suffer as there's economic upheaval, generally leads to wage cuts and job losses. So if you're about to retire, this can be a real problem. And this effect may be amplified for a company like Australia that makes up a smaller percentage of the global economy. And we learned this lesson during the 2008 global financial, financial crisis. And the Aussie stock market is not immune to economic shocks on the other side of the world. The local economy held up well and Australia avoided a recession. But at the same time, it's important to remember that the Australian stock market still experienced similar losses to the US, um, which was the epicenter of the crisis. It is, though, pretty hard to imagine a homegrown recession in Australia caused by maybe a slump in housing or commodity prices, um, making much of an impact on major markets in North America, Europe or Asia. You know, you referred to Australia as a company and not a country. I'm really sorry. Yeah, I just thought I'd point that out. As a new Australian citizen, obviously, I take this pretty personally. Um, my certificate came the other day. Did it? Yeah. Congrats, so I think Meg. that makes me official. I just need a passport now. Not that I can go anywhere. 
But anyway, <laughs> let's get back to this. So that's why, as Shani was saying, that we need to get back to the fundamentals of investing and understanding what we're actually doing here, right? So buying a share is taking ownership in a company. And the value of owning a company is the future profits that that company will generate. So when we say we want to diversify internationally, what we really want to do is we want to diversify the revenue streams and the profits of the companies that we own. And this is where there's some nuance in international investing. So all the stats that we were talking about related to those various ETFs, they are based on what stock exchanges a company actually trades on. And that generally corresponds with what country they're headquartered in. So the question for you, Shani, is does it matter at all what country a company is headquartered in? Um, of course it doesn't. It's a pretty dated way of thinking about companies. So we live in a globalized world and we have globalized companies. So the largest companies in the world sell their products all over the world and they earn revenue and profits from all of the different countries that they do business in. Okay, so how about we'll use a real world? We'll use a personal example for me this time. When we did, uh, when we did a previous podcast and we we're talking about goals and building a portfolio, we used you, so. Yeah, I felt like I was on the operating table. It was very. The operating yeah. table. Okay, <laughs> well. Let's, uh, let's see how this goes. All right. So we'll talk about a couple <laughs> stocks that I own. So I own a stock called Diageo. It is a, um, giant, uh, basically liquor and alcohol manufacturer, which I try to, you know, keep in business by my uh, <laughs> nightly actions, but it's a British company and it's based in London. And so it trades on the London Stock Exchange and I went back and I looked at their 2018 annual report and just looked at where their revenue came from. And Great Britain isn't even part of their reporting breakdown. So the company makes 24% of its revenue from a combined Europe and Turkey, you know, back when the UK was part of Europe. And North America is actually its biggest reporting um, area. And 34% of its revenue comes from there. So, And some of that went down, of course, when I moved to Australia. But conversely, many of my American holdings, if I go back and look at them, um, so 3M, for example, 60% of 3M's revenue comes from outside of the United States. Intel, 80% of its revenue comes from outside the United States. So these are just examples that, uh, that show it doesn't really matter where something's headquartered. Yeah. And these examples definitely continue in Australia. Um, and they sort of get their majority of their revenue from outside the country. But the percentage of domestic revenue for the ASX 200 is higher than many other indexes. Um, so more than 60% of the ASX 200 revenue comes from Australia. And you can compare that to the S&P 500 in the US, where it's the same, where the same figure is about 40%. Um, and it's about 30% for the FTSE 100 in the UK. So we see that a lot of the largest companies in Australia tend to have a domestic focus. And a great example of this would be um, the big four banks or Telstra. Yeah, so where are we going with all this? It basically means that while it doesn't matter where something's headquartered, if you're investing in Australia and just Australian companies, a lot of that is still domestically focused. So now you've got a job that is based on the local economy. You have real estate investments that are focused on the local economy, whether that's your primary home or any investment properties. And if you just invest in Australian companies, you've got a portfolio of companies that earn an outsized percentage of their revenue in Australia. So we've covered a number of different ways that you can diversify by investing internationally. Why don't we move on to the mechanics of investing overseas? Want to take us through that, Mark? Yeah, yeah. Why don't we start with funds and ETFs? So there are several locally domiciled funds and ETFs that trade on local exchanges that can give you exposure to different markets. So there are passive 
options, and those just follow global and country-specific indexes. So we talked about a couple in the beginning. And then there's active options as well. And what I encourage you to do is go back and listen to our podcast on ETF, ETFs and funds, and that walk through the basics of the products and how to select specific ETFs and funds. And the other option is to buy individual shares. And most brokers in Australia now offer the ability to buy international shares directly. Um, and generally, you're required to set up an international trading account, which requires an application before you can trade. One thing to know is that the transaction costs will be higher than trading domestic securities, and there are also foreign exchange costs associated with these trades. So these fees are for changing your currency from Aussie dollars to whatever currency you wish to purchase shares in. And these foreign exchange fees tend to be really lucrative. So there are brokers now offering free trades where their only profit will come from foreign exchange fees. So it's pretty important that you pay (laughs) close attention to the fees and transaction costs when trading internationally. All right. And so... So now's a good time, I think, to talk about foreign exchange. So every time we do a webinar on this topic, we get so many different questions around FX, foreign exchange. So let's spend some time on that. So as Shani was saying, when you make an investment overseas, you make that investment in the local currency. So that means that Australian dollars need to be exchanged for whatever currency you need for the country that you're investing in. And then, of course, once you sell your investment, you need to take that currency and you need to exchange it back into Aussie dollars. So that means there'll be two components to your return. There's a return on the underlying investment, so whatever shares you're investing in, and then there are currency movements as well. So let's use an example so it's a little easier to understand. So if you purchased a share of Amazon on January 2nd, 2020, the stock opened at 1875 US dollars. On January 2nd, one Aussie dollar would get you 70 US cents. So buying a single share of Amazon stock would cost you 2,678 Aussie dollars. By December 30th, the price of the share of Amazon stock increased to 3,285 US dollars. So you would have had a pretty great return on this share, a little more than 75%. But as an Aussie, you would need to translate it back to Australian dollars. Um, so on December 30th, one Aussie dollar would get you 77 US cents. So that means that when you translate the proceeds of the sale um, back to Aussie shares, you'd get $4,270, which gives you a local return of just under 60%. All right. So in this case, the Australian dollar has appreciated against the U.S. dollar over the course of the year. And that appreciation, as Shani went through, that lowered the return you received by close to 15%. So this is obviously a really important component of investing internationally. As an Australian, you want the Aussie dollar to get weaker against whatever currency you're investing in. And that will actually add to your return. And this added dimension to international investing adds complexity. We don't really want to spend too much time on what influences currency movements because it's pretty complex, but a couple of influences on the strength or weakness of the Aussie dollar is the level of interest rate differentials between Australia and other countries, as well as commodity prices. Yeah, so currency movements will influence any investment you make overseas. And we use an example of purchasing an individual share, but this would also impact the return of an ETF or a fund, which we mentioned earlier. However, funds and ETFs have introduced hedged versions of their products. So these are products that remove currency risk and just leave you with the returns of the underlying investments. So, Shani, you want to tell us a little bit more about these products? Since you love funds so much, (laughs) I thought this was good for you. I will. So um, let's use another 
another example to illustrate how this works. Um, so Magellan is one of the leading global fund managers in Australia and they have an actively managed fund called Magellan Global. They also have another fund called Magellan Global Hedged, which is the hedged version of the exact same fund. So both of these funds have been rated gold by our analysts, which is our highest rating. And as Mark said, this means that any impact of currency movements has been removed. If you go back, you can see the difference in returns. 2018 is a good year to look at as it was really weak. It was a really weak year for the Aussie dollar. The standard version of the fund, which includes the impact of currency movements, had a return of 9.82%, while the hedged version of the fund had a slightly negative return of 0.79%. All right. So, Shani, once again, this illustrates that as an Australian investor, you benefit from the currency weakening. So the return of the underlying shares selected by Magellan didn't have a great year in 2018. But when we take those currency movements into account, the return that 9.82% was actually quite strong. But of course, this can go the other way as well. So one thing that a lot of people ask is how do they, like, how are these things hedged? How do they remove currency from it? And the way they do that is they use derivatives like currency forwards. So these activities obviously have a cost and this cost is passed on to you as an investor. So you will pay slightly higher fees for the hedged version of these funds and ETFs. Yeah, that's right, Mark. So if we look at the two Magellan funds, the hedged and the unhedged version, we can see that there are higher fees for the hedged version, but overall the differences are pretty minor. So total transaction and operational costs are 0.06 versus 0.03 and recovery through buy-sell spread is 0.05 versus 0.02. So the big question is, should people go for the hedged products or just let the effects of currency movements influence the returns that they get? Yeah. So this is, once again, it is a personal decision and it's based on personal circumstances, but maybe we can talk through a couple different ways to think about this that can help people frame that decision they need to make. So I'll use a personal example again. So I consider myself a long-term investor, despite the fact that you think I'm going to die in four years, Shani. I think I've got a little longer to go. So I still think I'm a long-term investor. So to me, these changes don't really matter. So, you know, USD, if we want to take USD versus Aussie dollars, for example, it can obviously swing pretty wildly. So I showed up in Australia about six and a half years ago. It used to be 95 Aussie cents to one US dollar. And as Shani mentioned earlier, it's around 77 cents now. So in the six and a half years I've been here, there's been a 19% drop. And 2020 was actually a really good example of this, along with everything else going on. People maybe missed all the currency fluctuations, but there's been some huge swings that occurred in 2020. So 2020 started at around 70 Aussie cents to one US dollar. And then the market went through a bit of a meltdown, um, obviously in March about COVID's potential impact on China and Aussie exports. And there was a really dramatic fall in the Aussie dollar in March. So it fell to 57 cents and it bottomed out on March 17th. So this was another 19% drop. And that really occurred over the course of a couple of weeks. So, you know, the funny thing for me is because a lot of my investments are still in the US, even though the market was plunging from a net worth perspective, it didn't look like I was actually doing that bad if I translated back into Aussie dollars. But does any of this matter? No, none of it matters. The Aussie dollar has obviously recovered since then. I don't really care what my net worth is. I don't really care about fluctuations. What I care about is obviously where I'm going to end up and can I actually achieve my investing goals, which, as I said, are long term. Now, this could be a very different situation if you're in the withdrawal phase or you're very close to the withdrawal phase and you need to start taking money out of your investment accounts to live. 
then in those cases, these dramatic currency differences could make a real difference to you. Yeah. And one other consideration for global investing is tax. And tax is a tricky thing for us to talk about because everyone has a different tax situation. But if we're speaking generally, if you own direct equities, in many cases, you'll have to speak, you have to pay tax in the country that equity is based in on any dividends that you receive. The good news is that in most cases, the ATO will credit you for that tax you've paid. And one thing to note is that for funds and ETFs, your tax reporting is all consolidated, so you don't have to worry about global taxes. Yeah, and when we talk about taxes, of course, the other question we get a lot is around franking credits. And incidentally, Shani and I's first conversation ever was about franking credits. It was her first day at Morningstar. It's very nice that you call it a conversation and not an argument. (laughs) Okay, well, I, I think that I think that we are... Working relationship has improved since then. But I yes, so. anyway, <laughs> it was about franking credits. We won't get into the specifics around it. And, but franking credits, obviously people are very passionate about. And a lot of people have the view and have expressed the view to us that there's really no point in investing global shares because they don't have franking credits. And, you know, franking credits are controversial. We talked about our lively discussion about it or argument as you uh as you deemed it you'll have um, to guess which side each of us was on <laughs> yeah yeah send me an email about it um but uh but yeah we saw we saw the controversy in the last election but there's a couple things to consider when you're thinking about franking credits number one and this goes back to the last election they're not guaranteed so this is government policy that policy can change um Also, they're based on dividends. Dividends aren't guaranteed. We saw that in 2020. A lot of these fully frank dividends that investors had come to rely on just weren't paid because it's a choice by a company and they only get paid if the company's in a financial position to actually do it. And then, of course, they have to pass on the credits as well. And so that's based on company policy and based on their earnings. So from our point of view, we think you need to take a step back and weigh the actual benefits that you get from franking credits, and it does add to your returns. But look at all the benefits you're actually getting when you're investing internationally, all the things we talked about, diversification, getting to invest in industries that will shape the future, and getting to invest in some great global companies. Yeah. So to summarize, we discussed a couple of different things today. The first was Australia makes up a very small part of global equity markets, less than 5%, and you're missing out on a lot of different opportunities by only investing locally. The second was that the important consideration when trying to diversify is not where a company is headquartered, but where they earn revenue and profits. And in this regard, Australian companies are much more domestically focused than many foreign markets. And what this means is that only investing locally is concentrating your portfolio even further in the local economy. And finally, that investing globally means that you'll be impacted by currency movements. A weakening Aussie dollar is good for international investments. So if you don't want currency to impact your returns, there's quite a few funds and ETFs available that are hedged. And that means that currency risk has been removed and the only thing that will impact your returns is the underlying performance. Okay. And finally, let's go through a couple of resources. So I did write a guide on international investing called the Morningstar Guide to International Investing. So appropriately named. And as part of Morningstar Premium, we do have research on international shares. So we cover as a company around 1300 global shares outside of Australia. So if you do want to invest directly in shares, you can do that. And of course, we also have research, which we talked about a couple of times, on funds and ETFs that invest globally and are available for Australian investors. So I think we're going to leave it there. So 
Thank you for listening. Please send any comments. And like the person that suggested this, please send any suggestions for future topics or speculation about which side of the franking credit argument <laughs> Shani and I were taking in our first ever conversation. So thank you guys very much for listening. We would love to get a rating. So please rate or leave us a comment. Any advice is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation, or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.